Uh, sometimes in our lives, in this world, the solution ends up being worse than the problem. Uh, there was a story a, a couple years back about a Seattle man who was uh, very afraid of spiders. I know some folks out there who can share that fear. But he was in the laundry room of his house and there was a spider, I don't know how big it was, big enough. And he decided he needed to take it out in the most uh, efficient and violent way possible. And he made a makeshift blowtorch out of a can of spray paint and a lighter and burned down a good portion of his house and his neighbor's house. Reports were about $40,000 of damage. The uh, New York Times, I believe, reported it, ended by saying, was uncertain if the spider survives. <laughs> yeah. That's a great story. Well, not for the guy. Um, <laughs> another example that um, I was talking with Heather about this week are um, invasive species and how they come about. And it's more often than, well, not more often than not, plenty of times how we got invasive species was actually because we introduced them into our ecosystem to deal with something else. I don't know if you guys like ladybugs. You know there's two kinds of ladybugs? I just learned this a couple years ago. One of them are like greats. They belong here, they do what we want them to do. And the other one is actually called Asian lady beetles. And we brought them in in the early 1900s to deal with aphids, and those things are nasty and they swarm, and they invade houses, and they bite. Ladybugs shouldn't bite. But it caused a problem, and I remember, I remember as, a, as a child, one year down in Eugene, we had like a, I don't know you can call it a plague of them, but like they were coating the sides of houses. It was crazy, because we wanted to get rid of the aphids in our garden. Some fun illustrations, some interesting ones. But what's being illustrated here is something that I think we're pretty familiar with, that very often, maybe more often than not, the solution to our life's woes, the solutions that we apply, end up having as much trouble associated with them than the problem in the first place. I think we've all been there. We probably all recognize this. How many great revolutions in history ousted oppressive regimes, but then resulted in new, even more oppressive regimes? How many medical treatments for terrible illnesses and injuries bring with them terrible and often debilitating side effects? How many social programs or neighborhood contracts, or systems of family organization designed to promote equity and unity and good behavior results in new and unexpected problems and abuses. So often in our life, the answer to trouble is more trouble. The answer to violence is more violence. The answer to oppression is more oppression, and the answer to injustice is more injustice. 
And let's be clear, this highlights a deep and pervasive problem in our world. It is represent, representative of evil. The dysfunction and brokenness of the world that we live in is real. It's pervasive. And it's important that we wrestle with it. This problem actually is reflected in, in the last line of Habakkuk's uh, lament last week. When he says, for the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes out perverted. Remember, verses 1 through 4 that we looked at last week are the deeply frustrated complaints from the prophet. Directed at God, which is uncomfortable, concerning the corruption of his people. The way that evil was done and how deeply it harmed its victims. The way that, that environmental and human violence was pervasive in the world and felt by everyone. The way that human relationships, both societal and personal, had fallen apart. And how the teaching and instruction of God and his justice, those Hebrew words Torah and Mishpat, seemed absent, resulting in an increasingly wicked people and an ever-growing impunity for injustice. And as we looked at Habakkuk's lament, we wrestled with what it means for us to live in faith when the troubles of our world, of our own communities, and of our own sin look like that. And we wrestle with the uncomfortable truth that what faith looks like actually is laments. It's engaging honestly with our God and asking him, how long, O oh Lord, will you allow this evil to continue? And I think that was uncomfortable for some of us. It was for me. Today, we heard God's response to his prophet, and it is so much more uncomfortable. Like for me, it is downright faith-shaking. It goes against all of my sensibilities, all of my proprieties about who God is. Like if I were to talk about God, the way that God talks about himself here, I think some of you might slap me. Because as difficult as it is to hear our skeptical neighbor ask us, how could a good God allow evil? And as even more difficult as it is for us to admit that we often have the same question. And as difficult as it is then to understand and accept that asking this question is exactly what faith looks like. God's answer to the question is even more difficult. God responds to Habakkuk, not just by rewarding the prophet's audacious faith with an answer, which he does. 
not even by simply accepting the prophet's accusation and then taking responsibility for the evil in Israel, which he does. But what he says is, hold on, Habakkuk. I'm doing something about it. And it's something astounding and unbelievable because, I'm sorry, you're going to feel like it's way worse. Behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. This is where you're all supposed to gasp, spit out your coffee. In case you aren't an ancient Near Eastern history nerd, let's examine why this is so shocking. Chaldea is the ancient name for Babylon. One of the most magnificent and powerful and terrible nations in human history. They conquered like everybody. They assimilated people into their culture. They enslaved, they exiled, they murdered, they ravaged. They ruled the ancient Near East with terror until the Persians came along and did the same thing basically by taking all the tools right out of Babylon's toolbox. In the Bible, narratively, they conquered Jerusalem in a horrible conquest. They took them into exile. They suppressed the worship of Yahweh. They threw some dudes in a furnace. But the Bible doesn't just use them narratively, it also uses them thematically all over the place. Because Babylon becomes a symbol in scripture for the height of human civilization and ingenuity and evil. Abram, when he was called by God, left Babylon. He left Chaldea. Called out of the stronghold of humanity to something else. Israel was given over specifically to unjust Babylon to punish them for their wickedness. And in much of our eschatological narrative and much of the narrative of where things are going and where they end up, especially in Revelation, Babylon is used to represent the height and the end of human kingdoms. Babylon's bad news like the worst news. And this is what the Chaldeans here represent. The fullness of human wickedness, actually the fullness of humanity apart from God. But you don't have to take my word for it. Just look at how God himself in our passage describes this bitter and hasty nation marching through the earth in conquest, dreaded and fearsome, horses and riders who devour like leopards and wolves and eagles, violent, enslaving, indolent, and wicked. Not only that, this is where the poetry really digs in, But God's response mirrors Habakkuk's, like beat for beat. God answers the violence that Habakkuk was lamenting from Israel with the Chaldeans who come for violence. 
God answers the iniquity and wrong of Israel with the Chaldeans who seize dwellings that are not their own and gather captives like sand. God answers the strife and contention of Israel with the Chaldeans who scoff at kings and laugh at rulers. God answers the paralyzed Torah and absent justice of Israel with the Chaldeans whose justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Ultimately, God answers the evil of his people who have strayed from their worship and service to God with the evil of guilty men whose own might is their God. Habakkuk sees evil and injustice. He asks God why he isn't doing anything about it. And God says, hang on, I am doing something. I'm going to punish the evil and injustice of Israel with the evil and injustice of Babylon. Yeah. This is a bewildering answer. This is an impossible answer. Did God actually just say to his prophet that he was going to use the horrible, evil, utterly unjust Babylonians to bring justice in Israel? Worse, he says that he's actively raising up the Chaldeans. I mean, I've been wrestling with this all week, and I don't know how to justify it. You should see my notes. Actually, you shouldn't see my notes. They have some really roughly worded questions for God all over them. This good God that we worship, who is incapable of evil, who is righteousness, who is justice, who is peace, who cannot stand evil, is not only allowing the evil of Babylon, but he is raising them up and using them against his own people. God's answer to Habakkuk's accusation that already seemed terrible, uh, God, this is your fault, is a clear and unquestionable, you don't know the half of it. I mean, if you came to me in honest struggle with the question of evil, how can a good God allow evil? And my response to you was the real question is how can he use evil as his agent in this world and call it justice? I doubt I'd win you over. I probably wouldn't ease your discomfort. You might even accuse me of heresy. I might even accuse myself of it. Because that God would be problematic. That God would either be a reckless fool or evil himself. Listen, I love this book. I love Habakkuk. But I've been full-on wrestling with this all week. Actually, I've been wrestling with it for a long time. And my logic fails me. So guess what? I'm inviting you to wrestle with it with me. Welcome to my deep discomfort. How nice of me, yeah? 
But all joking aside, I, I think it's important for us to sit in that discomfort for a minute or for longer than a minute, maybe for a lifetime. Because we hold God to a particular standard. We look at him through a particular frame of logic. So do our neighbors, by the way. And it seems like he rarely allows us to do that. And so we don't know what to do with it. Sometimes I think we do more harm with it than good when we try and force God into our form rather than wondering at his form. So this is where I've landed after wrestling all week or all my life. The problem with that problem of history that Martin Lloyd-Jones brought to us last week, or the problem of evil that our apologists wrestle with. And you have to forgive me for a second because I'm going to throw a thousand apologists and evangelists and logicians under the bus. Maybe I'm throwing the skeptics who are listening under the bus too, but I hope that my honesty earns me a little bit of rope. But the reason that it's so hard to reconcile a good God with our evil world, and even more the reason we struggle so much with God's answer here of answering injustice with injustice is because we can't reconcile it. Because it is astounding, as God says, because it would not be believed if it were told. At least not without a complete paradigm shift that results from coming face to face with Jesus Christ and his gospel. And I know this sounds a little bit dubious to my skeptic friends. You can't understand it unless you know Jesus. I get it. But I also hold my ground that there's no other satisfactory answer for how we explain the difficulties in our world. Like, that's my only apologetic, is no one else has got one. But if you hear me out for a second, this is the gospel that recategorizes what justice looks like in our world. First, that God created a good world, a just world, or rather, a world with no need for what we call justice. But in the fall, in our rebellion, our sin irrevocably broke this world. Sin is both the reason and the shape of evil, injustice, oppression, disaster, war, illness, heartbreak, all of it. Whatever trouble oppresses you is because this world was broken by sin. And the only true justice, as hard as it is for us to stomach, is the end. It's death, the curse 
in the garden. Death for all under the curse of sin, and that is all of us. That's you and me, that's the Chaldean and the Israelites, that's everyone. This is what's pictured in some of the most uncomfortable narratives of Scripture, things like the flood, things like the conquest of Cana. This is what real and complete justice looks like. This kind of justice that we don't like, it doesn't confuse us, it doesn't cause us to scratch our heads, it doesn't question our logic. That's what it looks like. A hard reset. The ultimate violence to punish the ultimate violence. That is justice. But the gospel then tells us that God refused to execute justice in that way over his beloved. He refused to bring ultimate violence on the world that he loved, so he chose a different justice, one that would redeem his beloved, one that would restore his creation. And so he entered into a covenant, meaning that he submitted himself to this different kind of justice. And third, to accomplish this justice, he came, he sent his son to take on our flesh, living without evil, without violence, without injustice, without strife, becoming the perfect Torah and perfect Mishpat himself going out into the world. He died paying for our evil actually accepting Habakkuk's accusations for the evil of Israel and in that accepting the wrath of God for it. Becoming both justice delivered and just injustice punished on the cross. And then he rose, creating a new paradigm, a new life for his beloved and a new kingdom. He ascended to sit next to God and rule his kingdom with righteousness and justice and peace, and he will return to bring ultimate justice, but in a way that restores creation, that casts out evil once and for all without doing violence to his beloved. This is the gospel. This is the good news that we receive through Jesus Christ. And it's through that lens, it's only through that lens that the troubling justice of this life becomes a little bit more clear. Because through that lens, we can understand the depth of the problem, how extreme violence done is, and therefore how extreme the violence due is. So that lens that we can understand the impossibility of a worldly solution. How can this violent justice like, think about this. The kind of justice that's required for evil, how could any one of us, any human agent, deliver this justice without becoming unjust and oppressive themselves? It's through this lens that we understand the love of God, his unwillingness, and his covenant promise not to perpetrate this justice on us or this violence on us. 
and through which we understand the sacrifice of Christ, which is the only way for justice to be met without harming his beloved. It was for Jesus to take it himself. And so why then is injustice punished by injustice in this world? Because right now, until Jesus returns, there are only unjust agents. There is only Babylon. So what this sets up, and we're jumping the gun a little bit here, but we have to, is a kind of double justice of God in our world. That's my own term. You don't have to look it up. There's no great treatises on double justice. There are two facets to how God answers Habakkuk's cry. They fit our favorite eschatological paradigm. God's already but not yet kingdom has an already but not yet justice. And I feel like I have to start with a not yet It's not here in our passage yet. We're not going to get to it quite yet. But it's there and it's essential. Because this is the hope that we have as we wrestle with faith in the already. This not yet justice, this ultimate justice of God, where God will once and for all right every wrong, heal every wound, dry every tear and make all things new, the justice that this whole narrative of the redemptive history in Scripture is building towards. The content of the covenant, the purpose of grace, the ultimate conclusion. When evil and injustice and in violence and strife will be judged once and for all, not by Babylon, a wicked and unjust and violent kingdom, but by this new kingdom, this new Israel, the new kingdom of God, a kingdom of righteousness and justice and peace. Remember last week I said that Martin Lloyd-Jones said that our personal salvation is just a part of the larger theme, and this is why. Because you, if you know Jesus, are that kingdom. You are being transformed by the work of the Spirit into the people of this kingdom. And if you've ever asked yourself the question, this is why you're saved. You are saved for this reason, for the sake of the world. why you have been called, redeemed, justified, and why you are being sanctified is so that you can be members of this new kingdom. So that you can follow our king who is perfectly righteous and perfectly just. Our king, Jesus Christ who is the only capable agent of God's justice. And when that justice is fulfilled, brothers and sisters, our world will no longer be broken by sin. There will be no injustice. There will be no violence. There will be no strife, no heartache. Hallelujah. And if you need an impossible to understand answer for some of the why between God's actions and history. It's to accomplish this. 
This is a painfully academic thing to consider, very callous and insensitive, so just toss it out if you don't like to. But consider how without Babylonian exile, without Persian control, without Greek oppression, without Roman rule, what would the stage that Jesus was born into, that his ministry began and his church spread through the world have looked like? I mean, these were incredibly important world events. You could make the argument that as the rest of history rolled out, this was also the case. Obviously not in ways that we like. (laughs) Not in ways that embody righteousness and justice and peace because no human agents ever do. But that leads us to the second part of God's justice and this is what God is addressing here. The already justice of God. This is what God and Habakkuk are wrestling over and what has made us so uncomfortable today and probably will next week and the following week. God is bringing justice to completion, but he also is concerned about justice now. But in a broken world, in the hand of broken agents, justice always feels unjust. But we have to understand that even this, even Babylon, is a picture of God's grace. Because without his grace, things would go another way. Because until the final establishment of the kingdom of God on earth, until Jesus reigns, there will always be injustice. And theoretically, in light of the final justice of God, now this justice could just go unchecked, right? It could just rage until the kingdom comes. But God's love doesn't allow for him to ignore our suffering and injustice now because he's doing something better later. He's concerned with both. And he does justice today at the hands of the imperfect agents of the world. I think he does this in two ways. And this represents what we call God's common grace for our world. First, he does this through Babylon. He raises up agents to punish injustice. These agents are always unjust themselves. They always bring with them their own violences. Even Israel was unjust. Their injustice resulted in Habakkuk's lament. And they were a kingdom literally founded by God on the principles of righteous injustice and peace, given Torah and Mishpat at Sinai, And they failed to be a good agent. So what will we expect from any other agents? This is how it will always be. Like the lady beetle in the aphid. And what results, and we'll address this more directly in a few weeks, is a cycle of injustice punishing injustice of violence keeping check on other violence. This doesn't excuse injustice of one nation, of one system, of one leader over another. Absolutely, it does not. It does not mean that God approves of the wickedness of Babylon. 
but it is God's mercy to punish oppressors and perpetrators, to give relief to the victims and the oppressed, even if in this life that punishment is inadequate, even if this relief is temporary. This is how Paul can can claim about a pretty horrible emperor in Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Listen, if Paul can claim that about the fellow that he was under, It's important for us to understand that while injustice is incomplete and broken and often in the hands of things we consider vile, that there is justice that happens because God loves his world. But there's another way that God does justice now. In Babylon, God does justice through Israel. It's important for us to understand this because it calls us to be agents of justice in our world, even while we aren't good agents of it ourselves. Another prophet will tell the same group of Israelites to seek the flourishing of Babylon as they are exiled into it. We're not called to enforce justice or to punish it. Only our king can do that. But we're called to do justice. We're called to step into the gaps in our world where we see the injustice agents not doing what needs to be done. And to love, and to care for, and to protect. And through that, we, the church, offer a taste of this kingdom that our king is bringing, where justice will be fulfilled. So through the imperfect justice of Babylon and the imperfect justice of Israel in Babylon, God maintains his world in love while he brings justice to completion. God's response to Habakkuk seems impossible. It seems harsh. It seems cold. Sometimes it even seems a bit wicked. But in light of what true justice could look like, and in light of the impossibility of true justice now without even greater violence, and in light of what justice ultimately will look like, Because God has taken the responsibility for injustice and taken that violence on himself. God's unbelievable response to Habakkuk is proof of his faithfulness. It's one that we wrestle with. But we should both see God's justice in raising up the Chaldeans, and understand that Babylon can never be the ultimate answer to the complaint. 
This is going to get really important as we move forward in Habakkuk. But what we do with that now, what we do with this difficult faith now, how we live by faith, when faith means this uncomfortable understanding of justice in our world, when faith means seeing God's justice in the injustice of Babylon, I think quickly there are four things that we do. And I'm going to be really quick on these because these are really my next four sermons. So, First, we continue to cry out. We don't hide from the uncomfortableness of it. Next week, we're going to find that Habakkuk is not done with his complaining. There is still injustice, even in God's agents of justice, and we should name it. We should continue to lament the incomplete and often unjust justice of our world. When we see evil, we cry out. When we see violence, we cry out. When we see conflict, we cry out. When we see these things, even within the justice which we are called to be at God's hand, we cry out, how long, O Lord, will you punish injustice with injustice and violence with violence? The second thing we do is we wait. In a couple weeks, we're going to talk about the silence of God. It's a real uncomfortable one for me. But living in this space between lament and action takes an incredible faith. One that understands that God will act and that God is acting even when we don't see it and we don't hear it. We don't feel it. The third thing we do is we trust in God over Babylon. We'll talk in a few weeks about the temptation and the risk of placing our trust in Babylon itself. But we must remember where our trust lies. When our world is full of trouble, when our systems oppress and violate, when our communities fall to pieces, we should not be shocked or surprised we should understand that no one can, can, can fulfill the justice of God other than Jesus Christ himself. Unfortunately, even the church is an imperfect agent until we stand with our king in glory. But this failure should not cause us to question God's ju justice. Though we do and we're allowed to, that's lament, right? Rather, it should remind us of the need for a good agent of justice, of Jesus Christ. To bring about the true justice that no one else can. As the psalmist says, put not your trust in princes in the Son of Man in whom there is no salvation. The fourth thing that we do is we do justice. Remember, we are a part of the justice of God when we see injustice, when we see those gaps in our world, when we see hurt and violence and strife, we do. We help, we heal, we reconcile. Because we live in a world where the agents of Justice are unjust, where the answer to violence is violence, but we serve a king of Torah and Mishpat. 
We serve a kingdom of peace. And we live in faith by naming it, waiting for it, trusting in it, and picturing it for those around us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for it even when it is uncomfortable for us. And we pray, God, that you would make us willing to sit in that discomfort. But as we sit there, God, we pray that we would be brought to an understanding of the work of your Son. That that is where we would place our hope. And that would give us courage to live in faith while we wait for the full coming of your kingdom. Amen.